Father, so much in the world vies for our attention and distracts our minds and hearts. And we praise you again for this day of rest and worship that recenters our focus, that, that reassures us of the true things, that reminds us of the gospel and of all that you have done. Lord, come now through the ministry of your word and preach a good word to our hearts. We are in need to be reminded of the gospel. And we thank you that you have promised to do so in these ways that we have been observing all day. What a blessing. Lord, help your servant. I am weak. Help those who hear. They are weak. Be glorified among us, O Lord. And be kind to open our wounds and bind them up with the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Our text is Romans 1. Verses 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his word. I'm sure that it's starting to feel like we'll never really get to the main substance of the letter to the Romans. But the truth is, and I'm sure you can you can understand this since we've we've spent some time in these verses together. We, we've been getting glimmers of the whole picture all throughout these first 15 verses. We've been getting glimmers of the, of the bigger picture, of the substance of the letter. In verses 1 through 15, Paul mentioned the gospel that he sort of zones in on here in 16 and 17. He mentions the gospel previously several times already. Um, he's expressed this uh, resolute intention to, to preach that gospel in Rome, to go and meet those saints. And now, here in these two verses, he's... He's giving a very pointed reason why he is so determined to do this. It's because he's not ashamed of the gospel. It seems a strange thing to say, perhaps. You know, we might expect Paul to say something more like, I love the gospel. Or I, 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 I behold the glory of the gospel as, as the Lord converts sinners to himself right but instead he comes and he says i'm not ashamed of the gospel and you might want to look at paul and go well yeah we hope not paul i mean you better not be ashamed of the gospel as the gospel has gone forth from jerusalem after the ascension of christ and the events at pentecost it has been met with various responses you know in plenty of hearts it's made evident by the, the many churches that have de developed over uh, the course of time in the early church, many hearts have, have found the gospel to take root and, and, and it has borne much fruit in their lives. But, but where it hasn't taken root, the gospel has hardened hearts and as a result been met with hostility. And we may be able to make an argument that, that the hostility 
uh, towards the gospel was nowhere more than in Rome. The persecution that the church will face in the years to come after this letter is written will be severe. And we're not surprised by this, that the gospels met with hostility. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's a silly thing to the people that have not been softened by it. To those who have been remaining in their sin and refusing to believe the good news of Jesus. It's, it's a silly, stupid thing to them. And it doesn't make sense for those silly Christians to believe such, such foolishness. And so their hearts are hard and, and hostile towards the truth of God's word. The gospel, even today, make sure we hear this clearly, the gospel is detestable in the eyes of the world. It doesn't have a place in their arena. And Paul declares here, in light of that fact, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That gospel that he talked about earlier on in the chapter, very, very beginning of this letter, that gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the gospel about Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's that gospel that proclaims to us the the glorious excellencies of our Creator God, who made us for Himself. Even though we and our first parents rebelled against Him, even though our sin condemns us justly before Him, even though we deserve the wrath and curse of God both in this life and in the life to come, even though all of that, God still sought after a chosen people for Himself to set free from sin and to give to righteousness and glory, to set apart a saintly people of His own. This Gospel, Paul says, I am not ashamed. It's this Gospel that fills up verses 16 and 17. Everything in this letter will flow from these two verses. You know, did you ever, um, several, several commentators made this point as an illustration. It, it just shows the universal application of this idea. You know, whoever got a, a term paper back in high school or college and was written at the top, where's the thesis statement, right? This is Paul's thesis statement. 16 and 17 of chapter 1. This is Paul's thesis statement. And everything that comes after flows out of it, which means... We could say everything about Romans from these two verses if we tried, which we're not going to do tonight because we're actually going to go through the rest of the letter after this. Um, there's a lot that could be said here. There's a lot that may go unanswered here. You may have lingering questions still in the back of your mind and you can talk to me and we can work them out. But in order to keep it simple, I hope, we're going to think about these verses sort of in the way that John Calvin thought about them. John Calvin called these two verses Paul's eulogy on the value of the gospel. In, in these two verses, according to Calvin, Paul praises the gospel. 
he speaks well of it. He says a good word about the gospel of Jesus. And in so doing, he is he's priming the pump for the rest of the letter. He's getting us ready to see all about this gospel that God has written. And there's three main points um, that will actually serve as points two through four. So if you're taking notes, don't get too far ahead of yourself. There's three main things about the gospel here. We're going to see the power of the gospel and the scope of the gospel and the nature of the gospel. But before we consider those three points, I do want to follow somebody else's example and start with the end. At the very end of this passage, where Paul says, as it is written, he has a verse from an Old Testament minor prophet. And it is helpful for us to deal with that verse from Habakkuk 2.4 before we deal with the rest of the passage because it sort of sets everything in motion. Paul uses this Old Testament text to ground his statements about the gospel. Look at the end of verse 17 to start with as we look at this Old Testament text. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is, this is Paul's ground for the main argument of his whole letter, which is that the gospel is God's gracious way of salvation out of our sin, and it is free to all who believe. A a gracious gospel that sets us free from sin as we believe it by faith. Think think about it like this. Paul's sort of trying to preach to them in this letter. He's he's making an argument. And what was Paul's Bible? Well, it's, it's the 37 books of the Old Testament. So where else should he ground his argument but in the truth of the Old Testament? We're gonna, I'm going to make this point towards the, the end of our time in this text. Paul's not propounding a new idea in this gospel that he has to preach. The gospel has been true since the very beginning. This is God's intention from before we were made. That he would redeem us out of sin by a redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is not new. And Paul's pointing back to that saying, hey, this isn't a new thing. This is what we've always believed. What about this Old Testament verse then? It's, it's from Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah after Israel had already been exiled. And he was concerned for the people. Uh, he was concerned for their well-being. They were leaving the Lord. Uh, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, the prophet writes, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The nation had departed from the Lord. They, they weren't following after His law anymore. They weren't uh, committed to Him anymore. They were uh, approaching dangerous spiritual territory. And Habakkuk is concerned for them. And he goes to the Lord in, in, his, in his little prophecy book and he says, Lord, what's going to happen? And Habakkuk um, is uh, given a response from the Lord. But it wasn't really what, pro- uh, what the prophet expected to receive back. The Lord comes and basically says, I'm going to bring this Babylonian nation and she's going to attack my people and overthrow them and drag them into exile. And in doing this, in this judgment on my people, my promises will be fulfilled. 
and I will bring them to salvation one day. Now, you know, the, the, the complex providence of God and all of that is hard for us to comprehend, and it was hard for Habakkuk to understand too. This is what he writes in the begin, uh, towards the end of Habakkuk chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them, speaking about the Babylonian invaders, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's he saying? Lord, how in the world can you use a wicked nation like Babylon to judge your holy set-apart people? Why would you do this? You're of purer eyes than to look at evil. How can you possibly put a nation like this to use? And the Lord comes back and he responds again. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God knows that the Babylonians are wicked. That's not a surprise. God knows what's going on. And he comes and says, my people must trust me. They must live by faith that I will one day deliver them from all of their troubles and all of their sin and ultimately from death itself. This is what John Fesco, one commentator, writes on this. This was God's message to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, continue to trust me even in the face of circumstances that might lead you to believe that I have forgotten you. I have not and will not forget my covenant promises to you, my people. That's what God means when he says the just, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what he means in that Old Testament scenario. And so Paul goes in and pulls this verse and uses it as a ground to prove his main thesis, which is that the gospel, that, that, that salvation from God comes to those who trust him and believe that he will fulfill his promises. Just as the Old Testament people in Habakkuk's day were called to trust God by faith that he would protect them even though it looked like on the outside there was no protection to be had. God said, trust me. So also New Testament people, even us, we are called to despair of all other seeming means of salvation and trust in the one way that God has designed. This is what it is to have faith and to believe that God has said, in Christ is salvation, and on that we stake everything. This is our faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, there's much more to tease out about that phrase, which is why we return back to verse 16. And look at these three distinctive points about the gospel itself. The power the scope, and the nature. First, there at the beginning of verse 16, what's so special about the gospel? Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. Remember from verse 15, that, that the gospel is, is the declaration of good news that's found in God's word. 
Right? There, there's that word in verse 15 to gospel or to preach the gospel. It's, it's a proclamation thing to gospel. Paul's saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel because doing so brings the power of God to bear in the life of those who hear. It brings salvation to those who we'll find out in a minute who believe. It's true. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the word of God is proclaimed, the power of God is at work. And to what end? It is the power of God for salvation. And, you know, don't, don't get too up in your head about this verse. Most of you have experienced this power. By the working of the, the Spirit of God through the ministry of the Word, you've been brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And many commentators caution readers to slow down a bit at this point um, and to take note how God saves. He saves through the message of the Gospel. I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It, Paul says it in other places, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that God is pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I promise you this is the kind of thought that Tim and I have all the time. Through the folly of what we do, this is how God's going to save? Yes, that's what the Bible declares. It's through the, the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to, to bear down His power in the life of His people and draw them to Himself. And it wasn't long ago that Tim preached on, on Hebrews chapter 4 where it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the message of the Gospel and the, the, the proclamation of the Word of God is power unto salvation. John Calvin bids us observe how much Paul ascribes to the ministry of the Word when he testifies that God thereby puts forth His power to save. Calvin says, Paul speaks not here of any secret revelation, but of vocal preaching. He's saying... that. Paul's making it very clear. There's no special thing you have to come to know in order to be saved. You don't have to go searching for the power of God under the right rock somewhere or under the pew in the right spot in the sanctuary. He says, the power of God is put to work in the proclamation of the gospel. We may say it another way. But the power of God for salvation is not found anywhere besides the biblical gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this gospel must be preached. That's, that's, you see, that's his motivation. If this is the only place where there's power to be saved, I must go to Rome and preach. I am eager to go to Rome and preach because I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. 
Later on in this letter, Paul will write, how, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? Right? Saying if you can't, if they haven't called on Christ, there's no salvation. He says, and how are they to believe in him, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, the implication of this is remarkable. How many of you have at one point, or, or perhaps still, Consider the church and its preaching just sort of good work and good talking. You know, oh, that was a, was a nice speech that we heard today when we went to that weird-looking building. I know none of us have that particular thought, but the point still stands. You know, how seriously do we treat what we do as God's people? The gospel is the means by which God frees sinners from bondage and raises people from death in sin to life in Christ. Think about it like this. That's what goes on in here from week to week. That's what's happening when we gather under the ministry of the Word in worship. The Holy Spirit's power is at work in this thing Freeing sinners from bondage. Resurrections have happened in here. Maybe to some of you. God brings death, or rather brings life out of death in this room under the ministry of foolish men that God has called to His special purpose of proclamation extended from that is still the continual edification, you know, that comes from this ministry of preaching. That once you're made alive by the gospel power, that you are kept and encouraged and motivated and excited by the continual ministry of that gospel power. And so it follows from this that if we hope to continue well in the Christian life, then we must attend the ministry of the Word. If we hope to see our children converted, we must put them in the path of the ministry of the gospel. Sports and hobbies can have another day. Put them somewhere else and tell your friends, this is where your children will come to know the most important life-changing power they will ever know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where you, beloved, will be built up and edified. This is where your unbelieving friends and family, this is where your unbelieving neighbors will come and finally know the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I'll repeat it over and over and over again. The best way for you to do evangelism is to bring people to church. And praise the Lord, we live in the South where most of the time if you invite somebody to church, they might actually come with you. Let me and Tim do the hard work of saying these gospel things. Let the Holy Spirit bring it to bear in their lives. The gospel ministry of proclamation. It is power. Secondly, what's the scope of the gospel? Look at the rest of 16. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. This, this gospel power, this salvation that comes through it is, is given to all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
And, and there's two aspects of the scope of the gospel, of its reach here. The first aspect of the scope is the spiritual component. The gospel is for all of those who believe. You know, what we mean here is that, uh, that salvation, that this, this gospel power does not accomplish salvation apart from faith in the hearer. It's rather incredible that God has chosen to work His power of salvation through the ministry of the gospel and all that is required of us is to believe, is to have faith. And unless you think that that faith is a work that you're executing and then that you're saved by the work of faith, don't think about it as a work. Faith is a letting go. Faith is a relinquishing. Faith is a resigning to the work of Christ. It's a reliance on His work and not on mine. It's, it's, a, it's a resting. It's a release. Faith is not a work. And this is what Paul means about faith for faith, that, that, that the gospel is revealed there in the middle of 17 from faith for faith. You know, there's other options for what he could have written there. He could have written something like uh, from faith to works, that you're saved if you believe and then have the right works. Or maybe the other way around, maybe, you, maybe he would have said from works for faith, that if you have the right works and then eventually believe, then you're saved. No, he says it's from faith for faith. In other words, he's saying we're saved from the beginning to the end, first to last only through faith in Christ. From faith for faith. Nothing else, nothing in between. Just faith. We're saved by faith. That's the spiritual component. Anyone who believes the gospel of Jesus. But there's another component to the scope of the gospel. Who is saved by this gospel power? Jews and Greeks alike. Now Paul says first to the Jews because that was who was first given the oracles of God. That's the people that God called to Himself in the Old Testament. They got it first. That's all He means. And also to the Greek, that's the rest of us. All those promises are extended in the New Testament to anybody else. And so this means that that any who believe in the gospel of Jesus are saved no matter who you are. This is good news. Especially for all of us, unless there's ethnic Jews I don't know about. All of us are blessed by that verse 17. No, by the end of verse 16, excuse me. Also to the Greek. The gospel is not limited based on race or culture but also the gospel is not limited, uh, think about it like this, on your particular degree of sin. There's nothing so bad that you could have done at some point that the gospel will not come to you and save you if you would believe. It's not limited by your age. You can't get too old to finally believe the gospel and find salvation. John Murray says it like this, wherever there is faith, there the omnipotence of God is operative unto salvation. This is a law with no exceptions. That wherever there is faith, there is God in the power of the gospel accomplishing salvation. Now, there's all the intermingling there where the faith isn't of us in the first place. It's something that God gives us as a gift. But the basic is there. Where there's faith, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how bad you are, there is salvation with it. 
we're saved through faith. This also means in terms of scope that the gospel is not irrelevant to anyone. There's not anyone out there, Jew or Greek or anybody in between, that doesn't need the gospel of Jesus and can't be saved by the gospel of Jesus. John Fesco says, No one can claim that the gospel is is irrelevant. No one can claim that he does not need Christ because all people, both Jew and Gentile, lie under God's just judgment for their sin. The scope is, is universal. Believe, no matter who you are. What's the power and the scope? Lastly, the nature. What's the nature of the gospel? What's, what is it down at the bottom? And we've been kind of working our way back toward this because I've already told you that the gospel is gracious because in it, God saves us from sin. And that's what's meant here in verse 17. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You know, don't be like me. Or the beginning of this week, I started overthinking these handful of words. It is rather simple. And I want to help you walk through it by going back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Listen to a couple of passages from the Old Testament for these words about revealing and righteousness. Okay? Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now I'm going to read another, another couple lines here in just a minute, but what I want you to pay attention to is that when, when the psalmist, and it's in so many other places in the Old Testament, when the psalmist writes about God revealing salvation, it's joined by a revelation of his righteousness. They're basically the same thing. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. There's this connecting point between righteousness and salvation. The righteousness of God and the salvation of those who are receiving him by faith. That they come together. They're they're almost the same thing. The the gospel is power. Um, It's for all who believe. Because in the gospel is revealed to us the righteousness or the salvation of God. John Fesco again. The gospel reveals the righteousness that God gives to his people. The perfect obedience of Christ. This is a righteousness, Paul says, that comes by faith alone, which he emphasizes by the phrase there, from faith for faith. Paul is not propounding anything new. Always, God's people have been in need of their sins to be atoned for. And Christ has done it on the cross. He died when we should have died. But also what we've lacked is a moral, perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God. And in the Gospel... That righteousness is revealed to us. It's given to us. It's the righteousness of Christ that's now sitting on our shoulders, as it were, so that we are counted as sons and daughters of God. One other commentator said, Salvation always consists in reliance upon God's righteous intervention in history. 
And so I would ask you tonight, you know, do you believe that God has intervened to save you from your sin? Do you believe this gospel that Paul is talking about? If so, then, then rest assured that the gospel power that Paul talks about is yours and it, it has saved you and it, and it continues to build you up and carry you along to glory. That these are the distinctives that Paul is about to explode in the rest of his letter. The power of the gospel and the scope of it and the nature of it. And I want to encourage you, as you think about these distinctives of the gospel, it, it ought to draw out from your heart and mind praise to God for what He has done for you. The power of the gospel. The scope of the gospel. The gracious nature of it instills in us an awe and a reverence and an adoration and a marvel and a wonder. And it ought to stir us up to abandon all other hopes and all other things that we seek after, it ought, to, it ought to stir up in our hearts entire trust and reliance and dependence upon God alone because of what He's done for us. This is where we're headed. This is what Romans is going to be about. May God help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise You for Your Word and we thank You that You've given it to us. Now, O oh Lord... Send your Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son and write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.